Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. And so the big question is, are you trying to decide between a small liberal arts and sciences college or a public university? Or do you think you already know your top choice, but you haven't given the other option a chance? Listen in, because for our second segment, I'll be interviewing Brittany Preston, a colleague and former admission officer at the University of Colorado at Boulder and Oregon State University Cascades about public school options. Then Neal Relay, formerly of Middlebury, Colorado and Lewis and Clark Colleges and current colleague, will be chatting with me about small liberal arts and sciences colleges. And of course, Given my background at Reed and Whittier Colleges, I'll obviously be chiming in with my opinions as well. But first, if you're watching this on video, I'll be chatting with my colleague and college finance expert, Robert Stewart, who you'll see here uh, with me, about how being an international student here in the U.S. on a visa will impact what you pay. Basically, what it's what it is to be an international student, because if you're an international student here, you have to be on a visa. Correct, Robin? That is correct. Well, yeah, we'll define. Let's let's for purposes of today. Why don't we just define what we're going to meet? Who we mean by international students? So, not U.S. citizens, not permanent residents. Okay, so who who is an international student? So, the traditional international student is somebody here on an F one student visa. Okay, but a lot of the work we do, and for purposes of today, I'd like to include in that group students who've been living in the U.S. And maybe they're here on, you know, an H-dependent visa. Their dad or mom is here on a work visa or maybe like an intercompany transfer visa, like an L visa, and they're a dependent. So they're also kind of grouped in that international student category. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So really, if you're not a permanent resident, if then you count for this conversation. Correct. Yep. Okay. All right. So what resources can international students use to help pay for college? I mean, that is pretty challenging, given that a lot of aid usually comes from the government, correct? Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Right. And, and international students are non-immigrant. Uh, visa holders are not eligible for federal aid. I mean, the biggest question I get right from families is, what is this school going to cost me? Talk to me about affordability. What resources are available, specifically scholarships? So, it's important to do your research early. And some of the resources that I mentioned, so I'm gonna kinda, well, let's give a big shout out to the blog and YouTube. Um, I do know on our blog, we have several great um, posts on the financial piece, the scholarship search piece, or you know, merit aid, different things like that for international students, but also of course the admissions process, so. Okay, and I just wanna chime in quickly, sorry, it's blog.getintocollege.com is what she's talking about, yeah. <laughs> And the YouTube channel as well has some videos that were designed specifically for international students. But in addition to our great resources, um, a couple of things I like to mention when I'm talking to families, there is the Education USA Network, which is through the Department of State. So there are, I'm gonna screw this up, I think it's about 430 student centers, so advising centers in something like 170, maybe 75 countries. And their website's great. It has the academic info, funding opportunities. So that's a great place to kind of get started. Um, and, you know, as you're building your list of schools, because, you know, any advice we'd give not only to international students, but any student, you want to start with a well-structured list of schools. So this is a good site. Another site I like for that is um, a nonprofit organization, the Institute of International Education. They have academic searching, you know, academic program information, um, there is a scholarship database, so that's another good one. And the website is um, www.iie.org, okay? And the other one I just want to mention before we kind of dive a little bit deeper into the types of resources um, is international education and financial aid. So that website is www.iefrankea.org. Uh, this one's more 
aid scholarship focus rather than academic. Um, but what I like as well, students can connect with other students on the site and learn about, you know, you're at XYZ school. What was your experience like? What, you know, how did you manage cost? You know, you know that whole thing. So those are some good starting points. I think as far as diving a little deeper into resources, institutional aid is really where it's at for international students, right? Merit aid, another way people might know it. This is money that's coming directly from the college, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the largest resource for any family. And so this is money that's typically awarded based on information from your admissions application um, in a variety of ways, right? Some schools may designate some of this money for special populations, right? So uh, St. Lawrence University has a Kenya scholarship program for students from that country. Or, you know, it could be academics, your intended major, special leadership skills. Academics is a very big way um, uh, money is given out. So at uh, American University, for example, they have the Emerging Global, Global Leader Scholarship. So you can certainly ask schools about, you know, do they offer merit aid to international students? What are the deadlines? Is there a separate process? Number of international students each cycle who receive this type of aid? Um, oh, another good resource, actually, I probably should have included it before. The College Board, right, a site that most people are well aware of, right, international students know uh, the site as well. Um, there's a spreadsheet on the College Board site that is available with a listing of schools, it's all U.S. schools, what, who offer merit aid, the average award, that kind of thing. So it's another great tool for doing your research. Um, so I've been talking merit aid institutional money from the colleges. The external or private scholarship process that certainly international students should look into if they're trying to you know, get some funds for college, they're awarded the same way. You know, It's for a student who's studying marketing, a student from South America. Um, it does it does work similarly. Those tend to be smaller awards, right, than the the larger dollars coming from the colleges. Uh, but it is another resource that they could take advantage of. Mm -hmm. I want to uh -huh. put in a plug too. I mean, I worked at Whittier, which uh, I, as well as University of Chicago and you know Reed College, and Whittier was the least selective of those schools, but a school I really believe in. We brought in tons of international students, or. I don't know, tons, but for a small college, it was a notable amount. And um, I think that students don't always think about a lot of international families kind of think about the same 20 schools, but those are going to be the toughest ones, A, to get into and B, to get merit scholarships from if they give merit aid at all. But a Whittier is going to be easier and then you're in the U.S. and you're still getting that a really wonderful education. So I just want to put in a plug to look beyond the schools you may have already heard about. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was on my mind to try to remember to mention as well, right? It's mm -hmm. that difference between selectivity and the discount you can get with merit aid. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, other types of resources, just to kind of, you know, at a high level here, some schools actually offer need-based aid mm -hmm. to international students. And that's also knowable early in the process, right? If you can get it at a school, if you qualify, you're going to be required to complete some applications. Of course, you have to you have to look at your family's financial situation and household and all of that. Um, the CSS profile. So again, a form on the College Board. Another reason to know the College Board. Um, international student financial aid application is a secondary application that some schools use. Not every school, though, offers need-based aid. Um, so, and the other thing is, if it is a school, like I think of. Um, University of Pennsylvania, right? They meet need of any student they accept. However, if you're an international student who applies there, they're going to look at your admissions application with a little sharper lens. It might be harder to get in, right? If you're applying for need-based. And it's already so hard to get in. Right, so right. let's just say, I think MIT is the only school I know for sure that makes no distinction between international and domestic admissions students. Class. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's not widespread. Not every school does this, but yeah. certainly for the right family, mm -hmm. the right, you know, it could be another resource. Mm -hmm. Something I want to mention um, is in-state tuition, which isn't technically a resource, but it's a discount mm -hmm. you can get. So not for the F1 students, right? The traditional student visa kids. Um, but for people who've lived here, like I was mentioning for a couple of years, the, you know, H dependents, the L dependents, 
they may be able to take advantage of this. So this means instead of paying the higher cost at their in-state public, they can be looked at depending on there, there's some criteria to classify students for um, tuition purposes. And so a lot of the conversations we have with families is actually, you know, looking at maybe the primary or public school in that state, you know, showing them where the registrar's office is or putting, you know, letting them know you got to talk to the, um, I'm trying to think what it's called in California, like the deputy officer or somebody who reviews this during the admissions process. Um, but that could be potentially another way for these families to save a little bit of money. And to your point about, you know, selectivity before, I added, or I would add community college as a resource. So you think about a community college, there's a lower cost initially, right? And a lot of them have great transfer pathways to four-year schools where you'll eventually get that four-year degree from the U.S. So if cost is a consideration, international students could certainly look at community colleges um, as a good option for saving some money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, schools like Penn State, for example, I think 50% of who graduate from Penn State University Park are, have transferred in. I mean, it's a remarkable percentage. Sure. So this is really a very common experience at some schools, less so at the big pro at the well-known privates. But yeah, I, I can't emphasize enough that community college can be a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So I, the next kind of question or the next resource I would think about would be student loans, which mm -hmm. I know nobody likes to think about loans, but they're they're technically a resource as well. Um, and as we said before, you know, international students aren't eligible for federal loans, but they may be able to take advantage of loans from their home country. So like I'm working with a Canadian student right now, and we were talking about the Canadian student loan program. So provincial loans um, that you can use here in the, you know, in the US, at US schools. There are some other schools. So typically in my experience, these are more like the really selective schools. So like an Amherst college or Oh, Dartmouth, maybe. Uh, they have institutional loans. So these are programs that the schools offer students who are not able to borrow from the federal program, right? Mm -hmm. So still a resource. It's not going to be widespread, but that could be something you could add to, you know, like your checklist of um, resources uh, for, you know, as you research schools. There's private lenders, right? So this is where it gets a little tricky, where, um, you know, typically a lender has to have a resource a relationship with the school in order to provide financing to the families i think at the end of the day you know if you're an international student who can get a u.s citizen or permanent resident as a co-signer for a loan you'll have more options um so that could be something again if you're planning early think about um you know who might fit that role mm -hmm. any any last bit of advice or was that kind of the main <laughs> <laughs> the main advice have a friend <laughs> have a good friend yeah yeah um you know definitely do your research start early and is it you know there's lots of resources out there you want to make a four-year plan mm -hmm. um for this it's not a year-to-year -year thing i mean you do as an international student in many cases have to show proof of funding for a, a year of study um be proactive reach out to the international student office or the international admissions representative and then this is something that I've started talking to students about. There's lots of student cultural groups on social media at different schools across the country. Jo you know, join a couple groups and, and find out what their experiences was. It was coming from, you know, your home country to this particular school. What's the cost of living like in a certain part of the state or country that you've never been to before? You have to kind of think about the big picture, not just the cost of the school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think cost of living is really important. Like you may want to be in New York or LA or Washington, DC, but honestly, Grinnell, Iowa is going to be a lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, yeah, you know, so just some things to think about that way as well. So, all right. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. Sure. One of my favorite topics to talk about. Good seeing you, Sally. Okay. Good to see you too. All right. When we return, um, I'll be welcoming Brittany Preston. Birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us 
at Voice America TRN. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Have you ever noticed how a television show or a movie uses accent or language differences to communicate meaning to the audience about characters? If not, listen to Accent That with your host, Gail Marie. You'll learn the importance of vocality and how it works. Accent That, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Brittany, I already said this in the intro, but you have worked at... um, uh, CU Boulder or University of Colorado Boulder, yeah. Oregon State Cascades. Did I miss any or are those the two? I also worked at Gonzaga Simpson College um, and did some graduate admissions at Harvard. Okay. All right. But we can ignore those private colleges today yep. because we today we're here to talk about public schools, which is actually great. Um, I've never worked at a public school. I obviously applied to public schools. I counsel students who um, attend, want to attend public universities all the time. But it'll be really great to talk to someone. And I think you attended Boulder as well, correct? I did. Yeah, I did my undergrad at the University of Colorado Boulder. So. Okay, so you have really good extensive background experience. So first off, I think, I mean, it's, I think most people know this isn't the case. But every once in a while, I still run into someone who says, are all private schools better than all public schools? And I'm like, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> and you're speaking to someone who knows a lot of private schools. But um, so let's just kind of start with that. And then the other yeah. thing, and part of the reason I want to address that is this notion that sort of all privates or all publics would be the same. Obviously, they're not. There's such a huge variety in terms of size and setting. And sometimes they have specialties, sometimes they don't, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. why don't um, why don't we kind of start with what are some of the things that you like to that you would want to highlight for someone who's thinking about a public university yeah yeah so kind of to your point we need to clarify that there's a lot of different public universities out there i think a lot of my discussion today is going to be focused on those big ones but a lot of states have even medium and small public universities so making sure that people understand that you have a lot of options within your own state to continue education um, like you said I, I sometimes feel that there's a question around prestige or you know is it good enough or will i get a good education and honestly, I think some of this comes from the level of selectivity. Mm-hmm. A lot of your public schools could have 80% acceptance rates or 70% acceptance rates. But remember that selectivity is not always a perfect match for the quality of education. Mm-hmm. A lot of these public universities were established to serve the state. You know, they wanted to fill jobs. They wanted to educate the population within that state. And so they're dedicated to access. They're dedicated to keeping those doors open and opportunities open for their students. So that's just kind of a general introduction into the types of universities that are mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, they wouldn't be serving the state population if they were only admitting 15 percent. Yeah of those who applied or something similar to that. So um, now one of the things that I see always as a, I went to a small college with a very particular kind of environment and it was great for me, but I think 99% of the people 
who go to college wouldn't have been happy there, right? Because it didn't have fraternities, it didn't have, uh, or sororities, it didn't have um, athletics, it didn't have a lot of the traditional trappings of colleges, which for me was great, but sometimes students want that. That being said, one of the cool things about public schools is that I think they're big enough that there's kind of room for everybody, right? So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, when I reflect on my own college experience, which I know was a while ago, but you know, I could go back to the University of Colorado Boulder and probably have 25 different unique experiences or more than that, thousands of different experiences based on what I choose, based on clubs I get involved in or groups I get involved in. So one of the nice things about these large state public universities is they really have a pocket of campus and a place for everyone. Um, You know, I, I feel pretty confident in saying that these are the types of schools you can find your people. Mm -hmm. And if you find a group of people your freshman year, you might find a different group of people your sophomore year. There's a huge variety in in people's interests. There's a huge variety in the different ways you can get involved, as well as the areas of study. So mm-hmm. just the breadth of experience is is amazing on these these campuses. Um, I love it because you'll look at their club and activity list and there's over 200 different clubs and activities. So when you go to the activity fair and you learn about different ways to get involved, it can be overwhelming to some students because mm-hmm. there's so many opportunities. But just choosing one or two and you're going to get connected to that campus, you're going to make that bigger campus smaller and, and find your niche within that campus as well. And I think that's an important thing to know. You're not going to automatically necessarily meet your people, but you put in a little effort and you'll find them. Like that's, um, we have a colleague and um, I mean, she probably wouldn't mind if I said her name, but she, um, I don't want to give all the particulars. She went to college in a state that is sort of known for being more conservative and she's extremely liberal. And I was like, how did that work for you? And she said, well, you know, you you spot the people who are like you. And like I joined the newspaper and I, you know, she said it wasn't a problem, even if I yeah. disagreed with you know, 60% of the students there, it wasn't that hard to find my niche um, because you just, you know, you you spot each other and you join the right organization. And I thought that was really like, that was interesting to me because I hadn't sort of thought that deeply about it either. You know, absolutely. Well, and even the support services. So even if you are having a a trouble getting connected or finding your space, a lot of these campuses not only have on-campus housing, they have staff dedicated to helping you feel connected, and it's a huge staff. Um, You know, they've got a lot of resources to support you through tutoring, to support you. Um, There's groups like Trio on campus that support first-generation and underserved populations. So just the breadth of supports as well as activities can really, really make a difference for students. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to mention, too, is the honors colleges. I'm sort of continuously surprised at people who don't realize like I was talking to a student the other day um, who was thinking about Michigan State, and he appeared to be a very, very strong student. Um, University of Michigan was his top choice. He was from Michigan, but he also had Michigan State. And I said, "Were well, you looking at their honors college? And he was like, what's that? And I thought, oh, my God, this kid is so competitive for their honors college, and it would make Michigan State this whole other experience for him. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know we did a segment on Honors College not too long ago, so definitely go back and listen to that one, but... Honors colleges are a fantastic space for that high achieving student who wants to still be surrounded by other high achieving students. Maybe they were a student that took a lot of AP or IB in school. Maybe they were a student really involved in research. And maybe their college list includes some highly selective schools like your student with Michigan and Michigan State. But honors colleges are formed in different ways on campuses in such a way that a student may even be able to live with other honors students. They may have access to specialized classes that are smaller and led by hand-picked faculty. So they're meant to push that student a little bit more. Um, Some of the campuses I worked at, the honors college had like a capstone project. So they even had a specific research project that they were working on and they had a faculty mentor and they had to defend that research. So almost like a graduate 
school experience in the undergrad. Um, but I, I am hearing more and more families talk about honors colleges, and I want them to think even more broader than that. Some of these schools, like when I was at Boulder, they not only had the Honors College, but they had several select research groups on campus. So as part of the application for admission, you could apply for this research fellowship or be a part of the select group. So maybe you're not as into the social side of an Honors College because they have a lot of fun too. They go on rafting trips or do different outings together, but maybe you really want to specialize in a particular area of research and these different little special specialized programs almost create a selective school experience within that larger public school. Mm -hmm. I like to emphasize that too, because to get into graduate school, recommendations are very important. And I remember when I worked, um, when I worked for Reed, and this wasn't even a public school, it was just a very large private, I would get transfers from there. And these students had a terrible time getting letters of recommendation. Mm -hmm. And that was why they were transferring is because they'd been in huge lectures. Yeah. And they wanted a more intimate experience. And I'd get letters from professors who said, well, I gave him an A. So he was a great student, because I only give A's to the top 15%. But I don't really remember him because there were 300 students in the class. And I just thought, well, now I really want to admit this poor kid because he did the best he could. Again, yeah. this wasn't even a public school. But I think, like, think about strate thinking strategically, especially if you want to go to grad school, those recommendations are going to be really important. So. Yeah, and I, I think even grad school, definitely, but even just for employment and mm -hmm. some of the networking, I do think at these bigger schools, you have to be intentional about mm -hmm. making connections. And I think that's sometimes why maybe a shy student or someone that just wants to blend into the background may end up with a letter that's a little bit, you know, not as spicy. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do like to point out, even in those big lecture halls, a lot of these schools will have one day a week where you meet in what's called a small recitation. So maybe you have a lecture hall of 450 students, which is huge, um, which some students love that. It's kind mm -hmm. of that quintessential college picture of what mm -hmm. I imagine college to be. But a lot of these classes then have a smaller meeting during the week where you can review the material Oftentimes, they're taught by um, grad students, so you might even make a connection with a grad student on campus, which can sometimes then lead to research, but the, mm -hmm. which can sometimes lead to where you go to grad school and mentorship. Um, but I, I do feel like a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to go to the big school because of those big classes, but they often meet in smaller meetings, especially those early years. It can also really depend on your major. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're intro engineering and there's multiple engineering degrees on that campus, you can be ready for some large lectures. But when it comes to labs or specific smaller majors, you might have a smaller experience on that campus. Um, for example, I got my degree in the journalism department and we had only 45 students in my particular degree program, but I went to a school with 25,000 students. So that can show you kind of the ratio as well, depending on what you study. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely. I My brother and sister both went to UC Berkeley and uh, <laughs> my brother was a physics major. So his initial classes were huge, but by his junior and senior year, he was actually in a very small department and got enormous mentoring from faculty. Yeah, My sister in political science didn't get the same experience. And I want to be really clear that it could be totally different there now. Like, as you can see from my gray hair, this was a long time ago. But <laughs> but I do think like looking at the majors and you can even go to College Navigator and look up exactly how many students are in different majors mm -hmm. to get a sense of who's graduating and like how many students are in your major and then compare that to the number of faculty. And that can be very useful, I think. Yeah, that can be very telling. That's great advice. Yeah. And I know that like you never want to put down a school, but I think UC Berkeley can handle it. I think they're pretty bulletproof. Like it's like I get to bag on Harvard if I want to, too. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's clearly a very, very good school and a few people have heard of it. So I think it's OK. <laughs> so and I um, think that's a great example. Like mm -hmm. UC Berkeley, Michigan, those are big name publics that you know of that have great reputation reputations that are more selective to get into. So don't put those public schools in a bag of, oh, it's not a good education. But even those with 
you know, higher acceptance rates, some of the research, some of the quality of faculty. I mean, some of these campuses have Nobel laureates teaching mm-hmm. your intro class. Um, and so there can be really great opportunities for mm-hmm. the right student. Yeah, yeah. And there are small, um, there are public, if you want a smaller school, like there are, you know, I'm trying to think William and Mary in Virginia, that's a public school. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oregon has Southern Oregon College. That's public, right? That's very small. So, so again, like, and, and I think this is important to note because saving money, if you're one of those families that's not going to get significant financial aid, you want to, you know, there, there are these different opportunities and experiences at that level of uh, kind of in-state tuition. Yeah. And to your point of grad school, especially if you're thinking medical school, MBA, going on to graduate level work, saving some money during these undergraduate years by going to your state public can be a huge impact on your long-term financial health as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. A colleague here at Bright Horizons, they were telling me about a student they worked with. He really wanted to go to Brown, um, but he got a full ride scholarship to University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And he was really torn. Do I go to Brown or do I go to Nebraska? And he couldn't turn down that that option of free. Um, mm-hmm. And guess where he went to medical school? Brown. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, you can end up at some of these other schools and institutions, you know, mm-hmm. later for your graduate level work. Um, or like University of Colorado is a great example. During your undergrad years, you can get some exposure to the medical school there and you could be a competitive applicant to their medical school and do all of your education through the same state public institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of pathways that way, too. Yeah, I'll close. If it's okay, I want to close with this one anecdote that I've mentioned to many students. I worked with a student who she went to Yale for undergrad and then Stanford for medical school. So I was lucky enough to see like who she was going to school with. And they said what their undergraduate, what the undergraduate institutions were. And multiple of them had gone to Arizona State, which I thought was pretty cool. Now, I'm 100% confident they were in the honors college at Arizona (laughs) State, right? And this is just one year. Other years, it might have been Boulder or University of Arizona or University of Wyoming or wherever it might be, but that that particular year. And I just thought, there you go. Like that says something about the power of these honors colleges, you know? So so anyway, well, listen, Brittany, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All right. So when we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, I'll be speaking with Neil Rillet about uh, small liberal arts and sciences colleges. Thank you. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results... 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. It's Bucktober and the whitetail hunting action is heating up across the country. Joining the revolution this week will be Matt Drury of Drury Outdoors and co-host of Winchester and Drury's Natural Born on Sportsman Channel. He'll talk hunting strategies for big bucks, gear, property, deer cast, the October lull, a rut preview, plus some of his own fall hunting pursuits. The revolution is presented by Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, World Fishing Network, and My Outdoor TV. Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now... Back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. And I'm, I'm here with Neil, one of my colleagues, to talk about small liberal arts and sciences colleges. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. 
All right. So we wanted to start with, I, I think most people know what large public universities are, but we or what public universities are, I should say, but we still gave a little definition. So I was hoping you could start by explaining what a liberal arts and sciences college is. And popularly, they're actually just called liberal arts colleges, but I always throw in the sciences because there's a lot of misunderstanding around that particular term. So maybe you could tell us a little more. Absolutely. And, and let's start with that, right? It's liberal arts, but it's not anything political, right? Uh, the liberal there means that you have a lot of freedom of choice. Really, that's sort of the foundation of the term there. And in the arts, it's really arts and sciences and humanities and everything, right? Mm -hmm. That that one might want to pursue in college that's available at liberal arts colleges. Now, they do come in a variety of different shapes and sizes, but the thing that does tie them together, as I was saying, is, is that flexibility within the curriculum. You tend not to be admitted to a major, you tend to be admitted mm -hmm. to the college. And oftentimes you have a lot of room to be able to figure out, okay, what am I gonna major and maybe double major and take classes that are drawing from a variety of intellectual areas in addition to your major. So that well-roundedness piece of it is really critical to understanding a liberal arts curriculum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you, um, I mean, I, one of the things that I think is interesting is how different that is from schools overseas. And I think this is relevant because we do have a good chunk of international people from other countries or people who have kind of recently immigrated here. Um, um, you know, they're sort of not used to this notion that you can just go in and like explore for a couple years. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have any sense of like the, like if we could talk about like why that is considered to be a good idea. Right. And I, I was an international student uh, from one of those places that didn't have this system remotely, nothing like the system until more recently, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I had to sort of explain this to a lot of people. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, so you know, here in the U.S., liberal arts colleges as institutions are as old as higher ed itself because the first colleges in the U.S., dating back to the 1600s, in fact, were founded as liberal arts colleges, the first one being Harvard. And almost all, if not all of them, continue today to still be liberal arts colleges, including the first college, Harvard, right? So um, it has a long history tied in with how higher ed was envisioned in the U.S., that it really was about educating the whole person and the emphasis on the sort of intellectual life of a person in addition to the social life of a person, in addition to the spiritual life of a person was all sort of wrapped into how this curriculum was designed. But in essence, it's founded on the idea that the breadth is as important as the depth and that leads to people who are really great citizens, who mm -hmm. are really great, um, adaptable um, people who have incredible toolkits that, that will follow them for life. And I'm sure we'll kind of get into that in more detail. Uh, but to your question, yes, it is It is a quite a different system from uh, what is often found abroad in terms of the flexibility and choice that continues into your college years. But one thing that's really important to understand is that the depth does still exist. You still mm -hmm. do have to major in at least one field, and it could be a hard science, or it could be a social studies course, or, you know, social studies field, or it could be really anything that, that you might imagine uh, tends to exist at these sorts of colleges as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I may be getting ahead of my skis, but I always like to cite the um, the list of baccalaureate origins of PhDs in the United mm -hmm. States. And when you look at that list by number, unsurprisingly, you see Berkeley, Cornell, Michigan, schools like that are at the top. But when you look at it by institutional yield, in other words, by percentage of the student body, small colleges, small liberal arts and sciences colleges fall immediately on the heels of Caltech and Harvey Mudd are first, but then it's like right. Swarthmore, Reed, Carleton, Grinnell, places like that, which I think mm -hmm. is pretty notable. And many of these schools don't even have engineering departments, although some right. do. Some do. So yeah. I always like to cite that as like, I think the sciences are pretty good, actually. 
Totally. And we'll probably talk about during the course of our conversation, the why behind some of that as well. Why is it this? Why is this a model that has been so successful and persistent mm-hmm. through the history of education in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about that now or do you have something yeah. else you'd like? Why not? Yeah, because I not? think yeah. I think it's interesting because you um, I think that when I talk to people, sometimes they think if you go to a college like that, you're kind of a dilettante. You know what I mean? Like you're not focused on one thing, but actually, um, you know, I found, and I was a student at a small liberal arts college, like that really I dove into my major in incredible depth, even though I was exposed more broadly initially. And Mm -hmm. there was such attention paid to the life of the mind. It was not, a, it was very much not a sort of pre-professional environment which maybe it should have been more, right? Like, but there was sort of no, it was really about like, what's the value of learning for its own sake? Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts about how that, yeah, how that might lead to this sort of high success rate? And before we jump into that, it is important to note that these colleges, sorts of approaches, these sorts of colleges aren't necessarily for everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I certainly argue often that they can be for most people and mm-hmm. and sometimes they get misunderstood so this is a great opportunity to dig into that right so when we talk about the the breadth of skills this toolkit of skills that you're developing the toolkit of knowledge that you're developing as an undergraduate the the key piece there is 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 broad applicability is that adaptability in what is in reality an evolving world what is in reality an evolving workplace, right? And young people know this really well, right? Even if you're in high school, things look really different now from what it did when you were in elementary school. And that has been going on forever, right? And Mm -hmm. and part of what keeps this sort of approach relevant is how folks that are trained, as you said, in the life of the mind, in being really good critical thinkers, being really great collaborators across difference, being able to make the most of diverse teams and being able to analyze quantitative and qualitative data and and make evidence-based arguments effectively and communicate really effectively both in a written format as well as public speaking, being able to do all those things, right? And perhaps most importantly, to be a lifelong learner, right? Because you're trained in, in order to do that every single class you take fundamentally when you're an undergraduate, right? that translates to someone who could do any job, right? Mm-hmm. That could go to any grad school potentially as well. And that has really panned out from from my sense of my experience. I I went to, similarly to you, right, a small liberal arts college as well, and seeing how not only my life trajectory, but also that of my peers who graduated with me have have progressed. It's been really fascinating in that regard. Um, so, so that piece of it, but let's not, yeah, let's not shortchange that depth element of it as well, right? And part of that is, yes, you pick your major, maybe two majors, right? And you still have to take a really big bite out of them. And we often use the term large research institutions versus small liberal arts colleges. The reality is these small liberal arts colleges, liberal arts institutions in general, tend to be undergraduate only institutions. Mm -hmm. And the faculty that teach at these colleges still have to get published. They still have to do research. And who do they turn to for support? They don't have graduate students. And as a result, undergraduates at these colleges get to do really high-level independent work with the support of their faculty, experiential experiences, this range of different opportunities that you might have access to because you are a big fish in a small pond, in a mm-hmm. sense, and that your presence there and your active participation and engagement is critical to the success of the institution. Mm-hmm. So it is really cool to see those sorts of things happen. And, you know, I'll say that from my own experience as an undergraduate, I'd love to share a little bit more if y'all would um, permit me, right? Because, and, and I'll say it even before I jump into it, right, that my experience wasn't necessarily atypical but it, I think it gives a pretty good sense of what a liberal arts college experience could look like. Note now today, I have a graduate degree in education. I'm an educator, but I started as an undergraduate. I was an environmental studies major with a focus in policy. But 
I took classes in high level economics and statistics and computer science, like modeling geographic information systems and all this really cool stuff. Literature. I wrote a thesis on Chinese environmental policy. Um, just such a cool range of different experiences. Academically, I took, I took Chinese every single semester. I was in college, studied abroad there, was learning basically the Latin version of Chinese, Chinese like ancient Chinese at a university in central China. You know, as part of my environmental studies major, I got to travel to Antarctica on a faculty and student climate change science expedition. My acapella group, right? It's not just your academics, my acapella mm -hmm. group went to Japan together, right? Um, mm -hmm. I did an internship in, in Shanghai between my junior year and senior year. I spent a month there doing academic research. All of these experiences entirely funded by the college that I went to. And I could do all of those things because in a sense, the culture was expecting that I do all of those things and the opportunities were there to be taken advantage of. So, um, and that's, you know, a lot of these things are off campus. It doesn't even mention all the different clubs and sports and activities and jobs that I had on campus, right? I was an RA and worked in the library, the admissions mm -hmm. office. That's what led me to, to where, where I am today. Uh, but, but that sort of holistic, really in-depth experience with an opportunity to have hands-on um, experiences that that get you out there into the world, whether in a professional setting or academic setting or otherwise, were absolutely instrumental in shaping my pathway through college, but also afterward. And all those skills that I talked about were not just developed in the classroom. They came around because of the close mentorship of faculty who are have incredible access to as well, right, as an undergraduate, but also in addition to that, the the culture that really was motivating to, to be able to do those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important because I think um, when you talk about culture, because um, that is a really big distinction, I think, between at least a large public university where the mission as I was just talking about with Brittany Preston, our colleague, the mission is to serve everyone. And that's a, it's such an important mission, a mission. But small liberal arts and sciences colleges, they're trying to form a really intentional culture that is around the life of the mind. And that then I like this kind of what you were saying about it sort of creates an expectation as well as an opportunity, you know, that you're going to take advantage of these resources and all the people around you are taking advantage of them. So that pushes you to do the same thing, I think. Right. Absolutely. And what I don't want to give an impression of, right, that this is the ivory tower mm -hmm. that, you know, these incredibly wealthy institutions are unattainable. These experiences mm -hmm. are so rare, um, this and that, right? In reality, a lot of these colleges work really hard to ensure that their campus communities are socio socioeconomically diverse, are internationally, geographically mm -hmm. diverse, are drawing domestically from, from all over the country, right? And um, so, so, so that piece of it does translate often to fairly generous merit-based scholarships, mm -hmm. right? does translate often to many of these colleges meeting 100% of demonstrated need if you're applying for need-based financial aid, right? So so if that is a part of the perception, which I think does exist, Sally, I think perhaps you face this too in our conversations that we have with students often, mm -hmm. right? To be like, oh, I'd never be able to afford this, so that's not even in the picture because X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say have an open mind toward looking at those elements of it too because you might be surprised at what you find there as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I speak honestly as I could not have attended Reed without a very significant financial aid package. And it included loans, but it was not excessive. And um, it depends on the institution. But for example, it, it is not uncommon that a low-income student, maybe one who qualifies for a Pell Grant, um, actually might receive more aid from a very expensive private college and might graduate with less debt than from say a public university just because the funding might be more generous i'm not trying to say that some you know that that's always the case but it's worth it to look into it and to apply 
Right. And I, I wasn't some extraordinary academic student when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I went to Middlebury College. I had um, basically 100% um, financial aid package. And again, would not have been able to do all these sorts of things if there wasn't continued support from the institution mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that, that everything was accessible and affordable to me. Um, I wonder, Sally, knowing that we're a little crunched on time, whether we should also talk a little bit about outcomes, right? Because I think that can feel like a stressor, understandably and justifiably for families and students who are thinking about these variety of varieties of options. Sounds awesome. You can have these cool experiences. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, what matters is this translates into a job, a job right? <laughs> it translates into mm-hmm. sort of a sustainable life for, for the kid once they've graduated from college. And I'm here to hopefully allay some of those fears as well, right? That outcomes from these sorts of colleges are incredible, right? And part of why the smaller colleges and as a result, this, there's a small alumni network often, right? Uh, but they, the alumni networks tend to be tend to boast sort of the highest levels of engagement because these people had such great experiences that they want to sort of give back in that way and connect with young people who are at those colleges. And what we often talk about on our phone calls with families, right, that major does not necessarily equal career, right, mm-hmm. as is the case with me and you and many people mm-hmm. we know, right? Um, and really what matters when you're applying for those first jobs is the story that you're able to tell about mm-hmm. the toolkit that you've developed as an undergraduate of skills, of knowledge, of experiences. If you've been in that place where you can speak about, you can, you can draw connections between disparate fields and experiences and classes that you've had and to tie it together to be just the most impressive person who is a 21-year-old, 22-year-old applying for this job, um, that can open a ton of doors. And mm-hmm. it does, really, because I'm you sorry. Do to do that. Yeah. I do have to cut you off. I really appreciate that you did that as the kind of summation, Neil. And right. we'll talk yeah. more about all of this. So come back to the podcast. Um, so thanks to Neil and thanks to Robert, Robert Stewart and Brittany Preston. Definitely join us next week for our discussion on who should consider a gap year and why, whether you need to create a resume and financial aid notifications for early applicants. And remember that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. And you can also download every show for free on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.